Our scripture reading this morning is going to be in the book of Judges, and it's the first chapter of Judges, Judges 1 uh, through Judges 2, verse 6. As always, the words will be in front of you. Uh, There's a lot going on in this particular passage, so it might be especially helpful to have your Bibles open. So, throughout the fall here, up until Christmas, in our morning sermons, we're going to be mostly in the Old Testament. Um, Pastor Matthew started a series on who we are, our identity, last week, and that's based on Genesis and Exodus. And uh, when I'm preaching, I'm going to be doing a series on Judges. So that's what we're beginning. Um, So stick with this reading. It's a, it's a little bit long, but it's, it's, you know, I'm excited about explaining and talking about the richness of what's in here. Um, what, what's also a challenge about is there are all kinds of place names, and I'd be very surprised if I get through this without tripping up on at least a couple of them. So we will see. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather as your people um, to worship you. And thank you so much that we can gather to hear from you. Lord, we pray uh, for uh, listening ears, illumined hearts and minds. uh, And we know, Lord, that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. Spirit, please work in this place, work in each one of our hearts uh, to hear what you are saying Uh, to your people, indeed what you are saying to each one of us personally this morning in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's listen together to God's holy and infallible word beginning at Judges 1 verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. And I've given the land into their hands. And then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. And so the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites And Perizzites, Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Yes. And then Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, might remember, 
Caleb. We're going to talk about him in the sermon, certainly. Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. And one day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? And she replied, do me a special favor. Since you've given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. And then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. And then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Geza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. And then, we're going to talk about this in the sermon, there's, there's, there's a bit of a, a change in in. in verse 19 and going forward. So pay, pay attention to what that change might be. Uh, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. And so he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built the city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Axib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Agilon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Sela and beyond. Six more verses. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, 
So this is the angel of the Lord speaking. This is serious stuff. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Five verses, not six. Astounding neglect, astonishing grace. Astounding neglect. What do you think of when you hear the word neglect? One of the first things that comes to my mind is when you're, 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 you're just driving down a, a normal street uh, with houses and driveways, and then, and then you see all of, you know, the, these nice lawns, but then in the middle of that, there's a totally, incredibly overgrown lawn. The grass doesn't look like it's been mowed in weeks, if not months. Long grass, bushes untrimmed, weeds. That's a type of neglect. That's neglect of your property and yard. Also, thinking of neglect, I may or may not have seen teenagers neglect their bedrooms to such an extent that it looks like a typhoon hit them. Here's another picture of neglect. In St. Louis in 1984, a woman noticed a few bees buzzing around the attic in her home. And since there are only a few, she didn't make any effort to deal with them. Over the summer, the bees continued to fly in and out of the attic while the woman, the, the vent, the attic vent, you know, on the outside of the house, while the woman remained unconcerned and uh, unaware of the growing city of bees. The whole attic became a hive, and the ceiling of the second floor bedroom caved in under the weight of hundreds of pounds of honey and thousands of very angry bees. While that woman escaped serious injury, uh, she was unable to repair the damage of that accumulated neglect of hers. Sometimes in the news we hear about uh, deeper and worse neglect. You know, I think of those, those, those stories where you find... Um, Parents have not properly cared for their children, and sometimes that's because they're addicted to drugs and they're just spaced out all the time. And so kids have been found malnourished, right? Sick, dirty, uh, because they've been completely neglected. It's also possible to neglect your spouse. You think of a married couple, like the marriage where over the years the husband and and the wife are functioning more like roommates at best, or at worst, openly bickering, instead of living in the, the caring, loving relationship that God has designed for marriage. And that last picture of neglect gets us closer to the astounding neglect that we find at the beginning of the book of Judges. It's a neglect of God's relationship with them. God's people 
neglect their most important relationship. And, and we see that neglect in seven stages of compromise as we move through chapter 1. We read after the death of Joshua, that's God's leader in the book just before Judges. And that book, we, we, we studied that a few years ago here, Joshua was a book of triumph. In Joshua, God had established a special covenant relationship with his people Israel. And back then, that relationship was important to all the people. It was close. They were listening to God. They trusted in God. They followed his leadership. And on the basis of God's grace and the fact that they kept their faith in him, they entered in and they conquered the land of Canaan. And that was the land promised hundreds of years earlier to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in the book of Joshua, that promised land was finally given to them. And, and this was to be a, a very special land, a place where God alone was worshipped and served. It was to be a light to the nations so that people everywhere would forsake their evil ways and false worship and come to know the Lord. Near the end of the book of Joshua, with the land conquered, and only a few enemy armies left to defeat, God had them rest for, from their fighting for a number of years before Joshua died. But the land was conquered. The enemy's back was broken. All that needed to happen was a, a cleanup operation, basically, when, when God gave the word to continue the fight. With the land all but completely conquered, Joshua led the people in a stirring covenant renewal ceremony. And we find these all throughout the Old Testament. At certain times, it's almost like they were special worship service, worship services, and those worship services involved specific reminders of all that God had done for the people, how he saved them from their sin and enemies, showed them his grace, and in return, he called the people to faithfully respond by serving him, listening to his word, following him. And really, in our day, every worship service is a type of covenant renewal ceremony. Like even today, we're reminded of our sin, we embrace God's grace, we're called in His Word to follow Him. Joshua, that great leader, led the way in this time of amazing recommitment. And he said, and you probably know these words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people, like, yeah, they committed too. They said the same thing. We will all serve the Lord with our homes, with our lives. And so, you know, we hear about Joshua dying. Joshua would have died confident that all would be well with the children of Israel, the people he led into Canaan. They were on track. Their relationship with the Lord their God who saved them was number one in their lives. 
But Joshua dies, and we're surprised to discover that not all is well with the people. In a shockingly short time, they plummeted from that height of faith, and we see instead neglect of their faith, neglect of God's word, neglect of God's promises, neglect of their relationship with the Lord. Our verses reveal not only an astounding and surprising neglect of their relationship with the Lord, but also we see how that neglect could happen for anybody, anywhere, anytime. For you and me as well, for the church as whole. If, if, if someone, uh, and what we're going to be seeing is these seven stages of compromise of their relationship with God. If someone neglects God in their life. You know, maybe you, you can think of, of someone who it seems by all outward appearances has neglected the Lord in his or her life. That rarely happens overnight. No one really goes from being a fully committed follower of Jesus one day and waking up the next morning and suddenly deciding, you know what, forget it all. Just suddenly in, in, in a similar way, when a church, and this happens, churches kind of fall away, become unfaithful to God, unfaithful to His Word. That doesn't happen suddenly either, but over time, people rarely turn on a dime. It's not like a 180-degree turn. It's always gradual. There are steps and stages. It's not one big wrong choice or one big bad decision normally, but a series of bad choices and decisions over time that we make in our lives or that a church might make in their lives. And we can trace a number of them as we move through chapter 1, tribe by tribe. Israel was divided up into 12 tribes based on the 12 sons of Jacob. Each one was allotted a different section of the land. I want you to see this map um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. That was my bad. I went ahead, didn't I? Um, as Judges starts, it's time for the cleanup operation. No army in Canaan would stand a chance. God starts out with the tribe of Judah to lead the way, and the tribe of Simeon went with them, which makes sense. You can see in the bottom of the map that um, Judah is purple, Simeon is that brownish color. Their land allotment was actually inside of Judah, which is kind of interesting. Um, we read that they had great success against this Adonai Bezek, a king, probably the most powerful king left in the land. And what they did to him was obviously pretty gross, but just typical in ancient Near Eastern warfare. So it made him unable, obviously, to ever serve in the military again. Then they went out and they had great success against a number of different enemies. That's in verses 9 and 10. But in verse 19, there's a change. The Lord was with them, but they could not drive out the people of the plains. Which, that's weird, right? When God in the past was with his people, nothing and no one could stop them. 
ever. We read that here, it's because the enemies had iron chariots. And so, you know, it moves in in history from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Um, So these people had apparently discovered how to make use of iron before Israel. And so Judah was afraid of the superior technology, apparently. And so instead of faith in God who was with them, Fear took over, and that's the first kind of compromise were shown. Their relationship with God was compromised by fear. And next we read about laziness, and this is the tribe of Benjamin. Part of Judah's mop-up operation involved taking Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would be the capital in the future. Jerusalem was on the border between Benjamin and Judah, and I think just a little bit into Benjamin. And so Judah conquered it, but they left it for Benjamin to clear out the remaining residents and then inhabit the city. But we read that Benjamin failed to do this. We see no other explanation than sheer laziness. They just didn't do it. Until the day Judges was written, uh, there were still original inhabitants living in that city along with the Benjamites. And that was a problem. God commanded all the enemies to be defeated, cleared out and killed. And again, the land of Israel was to be a place where only God was worshipped. Then in, as we go forward in verse 22, we hear about the house of Joseph And another compromise, God commanded no covenanting, no relationship, no collaboration with the idol-worshipping Canaanites. But we see it here, it's the tribes of Ephraim and West Manasseh, they go in to take the city of Bethel, and instead of just taking it in faith confidently, they, they find a guy walking out, and they make a deal with him. Show us the easiest way to get in, and in return, we'll spare you and your family. Everyone else they put to the sword, but there was sort of a, a half-obedience there. Instead of completely trusting in God for the victory, they collaborated with the enemy, left more enemies alive, fear Laziness, collaboration. With the tribe of Manasseh, we see that convenience trumps obedience for them. They did not drive out the people in a number of regions, but they kept them alive and made them their slaves. Well, why would they do that? It would be easier to keep them alive than to kill them all and drive them out. And it'd be economically handy to have slaves. And so convenience makes Manasseh neglect their relationship with the Lord. The next kind of compromise was assimilation. And we read about that with parts of Ephraim and with Zebulun. They left enemies alive. And these people who worshipped false gods lived among God's people. With Asher and Naphtali, it was even worse. We read instead of the Canaanites living amongst God's people, they lived amongst the Canaanites. And so the people of God were few and far between in that region. With Dan, there was outright defeat. 
And with the legacy of Joshua, this would have been unthinkable just a few years earlier. But we read that the Amorites sort of mustered enough strength. They were defeated. They were crushed originally. But they mustered enough strength to push back the people of God in that region. And so the Danites were forced to live only in the hill country and not the plains. And so things have really spiraled downward. But compromise after compromise eventually led to defeat, actual defeat in one area of Israel. And maybe you think I'm exaggerating that this chapter is about disobedience, unbelief. After all, superior technology like iron chariots, I mean, that would have been foolish to face if you only had bronze weaponry. And who wouldn't want to make a deal to find the most efficient way to get into a city? Why not use some of these people as slaves? That was common practice back then. Their hard work could help God's people prosper. But the verses in chapter 2 make really clear how God felt about all of this if it wasn't obvious enough already. The angel of the Lord comes in and has something to say. And we see that the seventh and final compromise, this final stage, the end result of this unfaithfulness from one end of Israel to the next is judgment. Back at the start of the conquest of Canaan, the angel of the Lord came to Joshua and assured Israel of victory over Jericho, the whole land. And this was very likely... Christ, the Son of God, He existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit. Um, And even before He became a baby and assumed human flesh, He appeared in the Old Testament sometimes. Here we read, He comes from the direction of Gilgal, where just a little while ago, there was another covenant renewal ceremony. And, and so coming from Gilgal, that direction, everyone would have known that's where we promised to obey God. So it's, it's a not-so-subtle reminder of how far they fail. And they, they'd be reminded of that vow to trust in God no matter what. Um, the people weep out loud realizing they've compromised their faith in the Lord. But that does not change God's judgment here. Yet, there's a silver lining of hope in the midst of these tragic verses. It's not entirely easy to find, but it's verses 12 through 16. In the midst of the perfect storm of all these compromises, it's sort of like the sun shining behind a cloud. We read about Caleb. Good old Caleb. Remember him? Back in the day, he and Joshua were among the 12 sent to scout out Canaan. And they were the only two, Joshua and Caleb, who believed that God would give them the victory. The other ten were scared. No faith. The people believed them. And so as punishment, God let that generation wander in the desert an extra 40 years until that unbelieving generation totally died off, except for Joshua and Caleb. And they were able to enter the land and 
see the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, so many years later, in the midst of unbelief, in the midst of spiritual neglect, in the midst of forgetting the Lord, we find that Caleb, through this near the end of his life, kept on believing. He was faithful in old age, when he was younger and even in old age. He's trusting God to keep taking them forward in victory, which is why he talks about promising his daughter Axa to whoever takes that city. And there's faithfulness in Caleb's daughter's home too. We see that she's following God's design for his people in the promised land to settle the land, to enjoy the land, and live out of God's promises. And so Caleb's faithfulness, by God's grace, extends to his family. And this is how it would go moving forward too. The people as a whole would neglect the Lord, compromise their beliefs, but because of God's grace, there would be a remnant, a group that would resist the trend and follow the Lord no matter what. And out of that remnant, one day, Jesus would be born, the Christ the one who would save his people from their sins and restore that neglected relationship with the Lord God. And all of this leads us to today and the strategy that we're called to of allegiance. Though where everything was leading in Old Testament times to the cross, for us, we might look back to the cross and and think Jesus... We know Jesus won the victory over sin and evil and the world and the devil. So how can we be doing such a poor job? The battle's been won. How come our faith is so weak? It should be stronger given all that God has done and promised. How, how can the church be where it's at? The church should be engaged in, in the mop-up operation, winning the whole world and every square inch of society for King Jesus. And instead, sometimes it feels like the church is losing ground. And, and the world certainly doesn't seem to be improving much. And, and the fact is, we're often fearful about boldly living out our faith. You know, what will the world think of us? And even sometimes we're like, what are other people in the church going to think of us as I choose to worship God only, as I choose to rest one day in seven to keep myself holy? I mean, everyone's going to think, me and my family, that we're fuddy-duddies compared to the way most Christians are living. And we can be lazy. We just give up in certain areas of our life. We fail to fight for God's rule in those areas. We assimilate with the culture. Do we even look different from those around us? Instead, we're called to be faithful, to not be afraid to obey, to prioritize our relationship with the Lord and His people. Our allegiance is to be Him and Him alone. If any of this resonates... It's because God is working in your heart. You can't make yourself a Caleb today. God does that. But it's the same spirit that was in Caleb that lives in you and me if our hearts are stirred with a desire to keep the faith 
And if your heart desires to say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And, and so the question really is, will you give your full allegiance by God's grace to King Jesus, the one who died for you? Are you part of the faithful? Will you and your house be a silver lining of God's grace today and as such honor God, obey God, attract others to his astonishing grace uh, that saves us in spite of our sin and in spite of our neglect? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your grace in the midst of dark times. We thank you so much that, uh, our, that you create in us uh, a desire to live for you, to give our lives for you. I pray that we might have full-hearted obedience and live in the power of the cross. Lord, for anyone here who in their lives uh, is afraid lazy in their relationship with the Lord and display other stages and kinds of compromise in the relationship with God like we saw in these verses. I pray, Lord, that you would turn us around, that you would uh, fill us with uh, the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of Caleb long ago uh, so that many people are filled with the Spirit of God today. Even each one of us and those that uh, we have influence on in our families perhaps, uh, in the church, in our neighborhoods. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.